If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the first Sunday morning in some time where our discipleship groups were not driven by the sermon that was to be preached or was preached on Sunday morning. And given that the primary focus of our passage is the role of sexual intimacy in marriage, I trust that that is a fact for which our discipleship group leaders are quite thankful today. I will apologize to you moms and dads for the conversations that may be started around Sunday lunch. I hope they won't be terribly awkward to you. I trust they will be no more awkward than preaching this sermon. But I will try to handle these matters as delicately as possible. Uh, intimacy is the primary thrust of the passage that we're considering together. However, the passage itself assumes the practice of two equally important elements of a healthy Christian marriage, namely communication and spiritual vitality. In other words, marriage is to be a place, an institution wherein intimacy, as God has designed it, would be enjoyed by both husband and wife. This is fueled by good communication between husband and wife, which is founded upon a growing fellowship with Jesus, likewise shared between husband and wife. I am not a counselor, I am not a therapist, I am a Bible person. I can only tell you what the Bible says, that's my field of expertise. But by basic observation, at least anecdotally, I have never witnessed an unhealthy marriage that had good communication, spiritual vitality, and healthy affection or intimacy enjoyed within. I tend to think that this is one of those seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you issues. If you can find spiritual vitality together as a couple, manage communication between the awkwardness of men and women and the differences therein, and at the same time enjoy the fruits of marriage as God designed it, I have a tendency to think that all other issues will ultimately find their place. Regardless of the nature of the issues a marriage might be facing, working to strengthen these areas will usually alleviate concerns in all others. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to look to 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 9 and to join me as we stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians 7 1, the apostle Paul writing, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say the following as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me. But each has his own gift from God. One person in this way and another in that way. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they don't have self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We have read together this morning a passage from the book of 1 Corinthians. If you know much about the Bible, you know that there is an addition to 1 Corinthians, a 2 Corinthians, or as one presidential candidate infamously said, 2 Corinthians. What you may not know is that there are additional correspondences which existed at some point in history between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. We know of at least two other letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He speaks to these letters even in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In addition to Paul's writings to Corinth, there were the writings of the Corinthian church to the Apostle Paul. Inquiring about a variety of issues, not the least of which was questions regarding sexual morality. It should not come as a surprise to us that out of the church at Corinth would come questions regarding sexual morality or immorality. If there is a city, a church in a city, location addressed in the New Testament that most closely parallels the culture in which we live, it was the city of Corinth. To act like a citizen of the city of Corinth or to Corinthianize in a first century context was to participate in sexual immorality. And it seems as though the church at Corinth was doing what Christians have done now for centuries, overreacting to a basic issue. In response to the rampant sexual immorality which existed in the city of Corinth, the position of the church was to swear themselves to an oath of celibacy. Paul addresses this in verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. They said, because of all that we've seen and experienced, we're just going to be celibate. We're going to isolate ourselves entirely from the culture around us. And in this way, we will be sure as to not violate any of God's commands with regards to marriage or sexual intimacy. In theory, it sounds good. In practice, it's unrealistic. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. There are very God-given desires that come part and parcel as the result of God having created us in his own image, male and female, he has created us that have a God-ordained outlet or mode for fulfillment in the institution of marriage which God has so graciously given us. What Paul is saying in verses 1 and 2 is in essence what Moses said way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It is not good that man should be alone. And for the sake of inclusivity, we might say this morning, it is not good for woman to be alone either. You have this image this episode in Genesis chapter 2 after the creation of the world as we know it and man himself where a deep sleep falls on Adam a rib is taken from his side and from that rib is fashioned Eve it doesn't read as poetically or as romantically as I think it was intended when Moses wrote it or when Adam spoke it but he awakens from this slumber and he sees for the first time Eve his wife for the first time in the rest of their life together. And Adam says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Now, the rib imagery that we read about in Genesis chapter 2 is a literal translation of what the Hebrew text itself describes. But there is a very valid argument to be made that what Moses is describing there is metaphorical. In, in other words, it seems as though what Moses is describing is that a part of man has been removed. And from that part, woman, his helpmate, has been created. The strong implication in Genesis chapter 2 is, frankly, man is incomplete without woman. And we might add to that, woman is, on some level, incomplete without man. If I could put this as plainly as I know how, men are better with a good godly wife. And women are better with a good godly husband. It is not good that man should be alone. This is precisely the principle that Paul is describing here. Desires of the flesh, God-given desires, are to be fulfilled within the context of marriage. Any deviation from this pattern is to sin against the God of heaven. Paul goes on in verse 3. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. What he's described here is sexual intimacy within the bonds of marriage. This ought to be. In the early years of pastoring, I used to really, concern, really be concerned about couples, engaged couples who would come to me for premarital counseling in anticipation of their big wedding ceremony, right? And, and they would almost invariably come having violated the command of God, having been sexually active with one another before being married. And I would worry so about the consequences of that. There are consequences of having made that decision. And I would fret over that and counsel through and, and coach through. It is not, by the way, that you may not blunt the sharp edges of the consequences of those decisions by repentance and faith, by seeking to restore what you may have otherwise robbed yourself of in the days leading up to marriage and even within the context of marriage. But that was, for me, the pressing concern. Over the course of time, you grow close to a people that you pastor and people become more open and honest about the circumstances of their marriage. And what I realized is that not only were there many who were sexually active outside of marriage, but within a lot of Christian marriages, there was no sexual intimacy whatsoever. Now I think at this place in my ministry, that is as much a concern for me for marriages as even the practice of some sexual activity before marriage itself. If everything is inverted, everything is on its head, everything is backward from what God ordained it would be with regards to intimacy and marriage. Outside of marriage, there is the forbidden fruit so often partaken of, and within marriage, there seems to be this robbed ability to enjoy marriage as God intended it to be, to enjoy the fruits of marriage, intimacy as God has designed it, the fulfillment that God intended we would enjoy as husbands and as wives. So Paul is pressing at that. 
The basic principle is straightforward enough. A husband should not neglect his marital responsibility to his wife, and a wife should not neglect her marital responsibility to her husband. But please note, what is assumed in our passage, not just in these verses, but in the two verses to follow. Paul is assuming that there is a healthy level of communication within the marriage. The only way you're going to know about the needs of your wife is to be in some degree of communication with her. The only way you're going to know about the needs of your husband is to be in some degree of communication with him. Now, men and women communicate in vastly different ways. And what I mean by that is women communicate and men do not. That's what I mean by that. Even before, before the second service, the message in the second service, I sent by my wife right over here. And she got a bulletin out, which she's holding like eight feet from my face over here. And she says, I want to do this. And I said, huh? And she looked at me like, like this. And, and then she said something else, which I still don't, it's not intelligible. And, and, and then, and I said, what? And she said, you're hollering in here. And I ain't even said anything, right? I'm just trying to figure out what the woman said. <laughs> Men and women communicate in entirely different ways. And usually the way we handle that is by just not communicating at all. I, I have a limited number of words for the day. And given that in my role as pastor, I am often in communication. Usually I have exceeded my limit by the time I ever get home especially on Sundays. Like I'm maxed out in the eight o'clock service. Like I'm done. And, and, and that just doesn't typically work. Women, on the other hand, think that men are like Kreskin, like we can read the mind. And not, let me just say for husbands, on your behalf, wives, I want y'all to listen to something. Let y'all come in close. We, we don't know what you're talking about. And we don't know what you want. And all of those things you think we know, we don't really know those things. And the only way you're going to be able to get through that is for you to just come off your word count for the day, men. And you're going to have to come away from the assumption that he is Kreskin reading the mind. And you're going to have to get on the same page and communicate. Now, Paul is assuming communication in our passage, but I'm telling you, it cannot be discounted here. Men in our congregation think you can just fix problems in a marriage with intimacy. And it doesn't hurt anything. But you cannot fix a marriage with intimacy alone. There must be some degree of communication. And some of you guys are all fired up about the sermon text who have got this communication business. And you say, I don't know about this. But there's something else. There's a, there's a third element described in our passage that I think is critical to fostering good communication. Look down to verse 5. Paul says, don't deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I'm just going to be judgment day honest with you. I don't know. I, I don't think I have ever known a Christian couple who committed themselves to fasting from intimacy for the purpose of, of finding power in prayer. Paul is at minimum assuming that couples are praying and fasting 
together. In other words, there is a, a warm devotional life that they enjoy together in the presence of God. They are collectively enjoying the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have that as husbands and wives. Many of you do not. And here's what I'll tell you. Unless there is spiritual vitality in your marriage, husbands and wives, you will never have the level of communication you intend to have as a husband and wife. I was shocked to learn in the last couple of weeks and working through some things for the sermon series on marriage and family, 70% of marriages are initiated, of, of divorces rather, are initiated by women in our society. Did you know that? 70%. I was a little surprised to see the honesty of, of the research and the reporting with regards to divorce in our culture. Now, most research will cite the number one reason for divorce as a lack of commitment. I'm a little bit surprised that, that there's that much honesty in secular research. That is the bottom line, base level cause for every divorce. It's just a basic lack of commitment. But among women, if you, if you will poll the audience, you will find that when most women speak to the issue in their marriage, they're not citing intimacy or even financial issues or any of those sort of stereotypical issues in marriage that create an environment for divorce. They're citing communication. Now, I think there's some reasons behind this, namely the prevalence of sex outside of marriage. Let me just tell you, young ladies and young men alike. Men, men are, are just dogs. And if a man has an opportunity, it's, it's a fact. It's biblical. He's a dog. And she is too on some level. His just shows itself in different ways. And if, if he has the occasion to express his affection for his girlfriend or fiance without having a conversation, but in physical intimacy, he will always opt for the option that doesn't involve words. And no, there's never any pattern, no setting ever established, no, no means of communication ever built or developed in the courtship period of that relationship. And then you say, I do. And you wonder why we can't have a conversation, why we don't communicate. There's never been the development of that discipline between a husband and wife. You move straight from the hellos and how are yous to elements of marriage that God only intended for marriage without the necessary developmental steps that were to take place along the way. Ladies will cite, without exception, communication as the number one issue. And then the man will say, we communicate fine. And she will say, no, we do not. Let me, just, let me show you what I mean. If you are here as a wife and you feel as though you communicate well with your husband, he communicates well with you, would you raise your hand? <laughs> See what I'm talking about? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. There's a few. There's a few gracious wives, husband <laughs> jobbing them. So, so I'm just, I'm tell you from personal experience, there are times when I walk away from a conversation with my wife and I feel as though I've communicated well. 
and I, and I find out later that I did not. <laughs> however, however, listen, this is big. When we're praying together, when we're sharing the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the worship of Jesus, I get credit for communication I really didn't even do very well. There's something about the openness and vulnerability of sharing a devotional life together that communicates in ways that even exceed the power of words. When there's good spiritual vitality within the relationship, there is almost always good communication within the relationship. And when there's good communication within the relationship, there is almost always good intimacy within the relationship. This is sort of the pattern that Paul is describing here. Fair enough, assuming the latter two elements, communication and spiritual vitality, but no one would deny that those are present, at least at minimum, in our passage. Now go down to verse 6. Paul says, I say the following as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each one has his own gift. One person in this way and another in that way. Now, what is Paul saying? I wish that everyone were like me. Paul is single. And there are certain liberties that come with singleness. Paul says, I wish everyone could enjoy this gift of singleness. And that's the proper way to make reference to singleness. It is God's gift. He will describe later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that there are certain obligations and responsibilities that come with marriage that can be a limiting factor in terms of kingdom work. I find myself from time to time in conversation with young men who feel a sense of calling to pastoral ministry. And they will almost inevitably ask about work-life balance. How do you do the things that ministry requires of you and at the same time love your wife well and lead your family well? And I'm not sure I'm always a good example of what that ought to look like, but I'll always give the counsel that your capacity for ministry is not set by your physical ability, but by the willingness of your wife. In other words, what is she willing to put up with? How much I'm able to do in ministry is really not about what I'm capable of getting done. It's about the needs of my wife and my family at a given moment in my life. I, I, I cannot serve beyond the ceiling that my wife and children can tolerate. It can be a source of frustration if you don't manage that well. And it can be, it can be the reason for neglect as a pastor, neglecting your family, if you're not sensitive to where their abilities are or the ceiling is for them. But we must be tender to that. Now, usually I'm having that conversation within the framework of ministry, but it's true in every area of life. Your ability within your career or vocation is not determined by the ceiling, ought not to be determined by your physical or natural ability, but by your family's capacity for your absence or your service in some particular way. You may be able to work 100 hours a week, and you may like what that does for the bottom line. You may be able to assume the demanding job that requires of you an unreasonable amount of time, and it may be good for the bottom line, but it may not be in the best interest of your family. It may not be at this season in your life what your wife or your children need. And so that must be a factor. Paul says this is not an issue for single people. You can work all you want. 
You can take the most demanding job in the world. In so much as there is margin for spiritual disciplines, growing in grace, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, take all of the liberties and freedoms and privileges that come with singleness and leverage them to see much made of Jesus. Singleness, as Paul describes it, is a gift. Just as marriage is God's gift, so too is that season of life we identify as singleness. Now, from time to time, young ladies in our church, occasionally a young man in our church, and, and from time to time, even moms and dads will say, Brother Wade, would you mind being a participant in our search for our young girl's husband? Or could you help me find a wife? And I am glad to be a participant in making such love connections, right? What pastor does not delight to make matches within his own congregation? But at the same time, there ought to be a want to embrace that season of singleness and to leverage your life in that window of time that much would be made of Jesus. Maybe God hasn't necessarily gifted you that way. This is just your station in life, but you're praying that God would provide a wife or that God would pro provide a husband, that God would give you down the road a family. But at the same time, asking that God would give you the kind of perspective that says, yes, this is my station in life. I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to give my undivided attention and my undivided allegiance to the service of King Jesus. I'm going to leverage all of the liberties and privileges of singleness to see much made of Jesus in all the earth. From Paul's perspective, singleness is a gift. And if this is your status or even your calling in life, you ought to embrace it as a gift. However, this is not a gift that everyone enjoys. Look down to verse 8. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they don't have self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with desire. In other words, if you don't have the gift of singleness, gentlemen, get a wife. And if you don't have the gift of singleness, ladies, get a husband. For it is better to marry than to burn with desire, as the Apostle Paul describes it. Now, I am told, research says that 17% of millennials, that's my generation, and 7% of Gen Z, that's the next generation, say they don't plan on getting married at all. They've taken the Corinthian approach which is to say, I have seen so much foolishness, so much heartache, so much catastrophe that I'm going to protect myself from such outcomes by refraining from marriage altogether. 73% of young adults say they feel it's too expensive to get married. And it is. It is too expensive to get married. But listen to me and listen carefully. Your financial success ought not be your most pressing concern as a young adult. Your vocational success ought not be your most pressing concern as a young adult. If you don't have the gift of singleness, it is far too costly not to get married. 
And the church has to stop coaching this and training in this way. The Jews just have to stop, just stop altogether. I'm not one of those guys that wants to trace all of the issues in our culture back to issues within the church. That's foolish and wrongheaded and unfair altogether. But there are some ways that we can work to alleviate or to, to blunt the, the sharp force of the, cultural, of the culture's teaching with regards to these issues. The, the first thing in light of our passage is you just got to rid yourself of this notion that sex is bad. And stop telling your kids that. It's, a, it's God's gift for satisfaction and fulfillment within the context of marriage. It is a good and glorious thing within the God-ordained confines of marriage. Outside of that, it is a disaster. It is a disaster. And to partake of forbidden fruit is to sin against a holy God, regardless of how that expresses itself. It is a sin against a holy God. But within marriage, a beautiful thing. God's gift supplied for us according to his riches and glory in his son, Christ Jesus. But another thing you want to come off of, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, is this whole business of you got to graduate college have the job you're going to work for the next 30 years and a house with three bedrooms and two and a half bath and a $50,000 car to ride around in. It's just, it's just unrealistic. You, you realize in the best of scenarios, your kid's going to be 22 years old when they graduate from college. 22 years old. They become pubescent young adults at roughly 13 years of age. If you think that your child is going to suppress God-given sexual desire for a decade and remain chaste, walking worthy of their call as a faithful follower of Jesus, you are fooling yourself. These are just the facts. And now we got people at 25 and 30 and 35 years old finally deciding I'm at a place in my life where I think I want to get married. Never mind that they've cohabitated for the last five years or that they've had 15 partners over the last 10 years. Now I'm at a place in my life where it's socially acceptable that I would say I do and commit myself to someone else forever. And then we wonder why so many marriages end in absolute disaster, divorce, and great catastrophe. We've got to begin to say with enthusiasm, marriage is a wonderful and beautiful gift. Our kids need to hear from us that marriage is a wonderful and beautiful gift. That I am better as a man because of my wife in my life. That you ladies are better as a woman because of the role of your husband in your life. That our family is here today flourishing, thriving, growing in grace, loving Jesus and enjoying all of the benefits that come therein because of the gift of marriage. Some of you think that this is just a young people issue, and, it, and it's not. I tell you what I've experienced about a dozen times over the past 10 years. Senior adult couple, single, single, senior adult individuals. He loses his wife, she loses her husband. And they start sitting together in church. And then early bird dinners. I'm just messing with y'all. Everyone knows, you know, they're sort of sweethearts. 
my, Brandy and I, this, and it's always a beautiful thing to see, right? It always just makes, maybe even more than when young people are, come together in marriage, when an, when an older couple is able to come together and commit themselves one to another and be able to spend their last year, it's just a beautiful thing to me. Brandy and I were married on February 7th, which means it was one of those rare years when a Saturday was on Valentine's Day. And we, we couldn't get married on Valentine's Day because there was an 80-some-odd-year-old couple who had reserved the church on that particular day who eventually decided to move it up to the November before because, as he said, we're too old to be waiting around. <laughs> Marriage is a gift regardless of where you find yourself in life, right? And they get together, and the early bird dinners turn into a little more. And then they come to the pastor, and here's what they'll say. By the way, we, we, are, we are ready to get married. But there, there are certain financial benefits that come with being a, a single widowed person. And we'd rather not let go of those benefits. What we'd like you to do is some type of informal ceremony. So that we're able to be married, just not legally, just not on paper. What they may not realize they're asking is that the church would affirm their sin in cohabiting together as a husband and wife apart from legal marriage. By the way, this preacher ain't going to do it. The only response is, is to say, dear brother, dear sister, you should repent of your sin. The sin of valuing your financial standing over being right before the holy God of heaven. That's the only response that can be given under such circumstances. From time to time, I'll see people that, that go through a divorce. And, and, and I, I hate divorce, but the hard reality is that it happens. There are crazy people in the world. Don't marry crazy people. There are fools in the world. Don't marry fools. Don't do it. And save yourself some heartache. But inevitably, people do. And divorce happens. And then they find someone that loves Jesus, wants to walk with them. Someone who, who, who maybe doesn't, maybe isn't crazy, right? They find somebody who's not a fool. And, and then they begin to come together. And they think that because they're now in their 40s, that they're exempted from prohibitions against sex outside of, of marriage. This is, this is not about teenagers, this is about men and women of all ages. I don't care if you're 18 or you're 88. The principles of our passage and all others with regards to marriage and sexual intimacy apply to your life. Marriage ought to be regarded as a great gift. We ought to acknowledge that singleness is not a gift that will be or is enjoyed by all. There's something I want to show you here. Lord willing, we'll, we'll address this with some greater depth next Sunday. But note the way Paul speaks in verse 8. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. He's again single. If you can stay in this uh, sta station in life, stay there. It's good. You can leverage the freedoms that come with that to serve the kingdom. But he, he identifies here two groups, unmarried and widows. Later in the passage, he identifies a third category of people as virgins. Moms and dads, I'm so sorry at the questions that you're going to answer at, at Sunday lunch today. These three categories really describe all people. Virgins is the terminology that Paul uses to describe people 
who have never been married. They're, they're singles, and they've never married. And then he uses the language of widows for those who obviously were married, but their spouse has deceased. And then the unmarried. And the only category of people that remains to be described by this unmarried category are those who have experienced divorce at some point in their life and now are in a state of singleness as a result of that divorce. I'll just point that out to say 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where I find license in the Bible to be an officiant under the right circumstances of a marriage that involves at least one person who has the experience of divorce at some place in their background. I don't do that overlooking what God's word says. There is license for that in the Bible. With regards to the unmarried and the widows, it's good that they remain single, but if they don't have self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Again, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not an anthropologist. But I, 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 can, I can look back over recent history. Within living memory, there was a generation who married young and maybe they didn't date long. And in that generation, marriages lasted 40 and 50 and 60 and in some cases, 70 years. And, and now people date for five years. If you, if you young people, if you come to me and you say, this is my girlfriend, we've been dating for two years, I'm going to roll my eyes at you. It's, it happens impulsively. I cannot stop it. You have lost your mind. And, and then I'll get couples that will come to me and they'll say, we're engaged. And I'll say, well, what's the date? 2033. <laughs> and I'm going, I'm, going, I'm going to make fun of you. I'm just telling you straight up. We have prioritized financial and career success over being right before the God of heaven. And we are reaping the whirlwind as a consequence of wrong-headed priorities that have no concern whatsoever for what it means to be holy, even as the God of heaven is holy. Now, I recognize that there are all sorts of complicating factors. Listen, I get it. There are complicating factors that exist. There are variables and there are challenges and hardships that every couple faces. But they are all well beneath the feet of Jesus. And Jesus has spoken without qualification, without need even for clarification. He has spoken. The parameters for intimacy and marriage have been established in his word. God is unconcerned with the wind and wave of cultural acceptance. If you'll try it God's way, I'll guarantee you'll never regret that you did. Now here's the other side of that coin. All over this room, there are those that have failed with regards to marriage and intimacy. You men aren't communicating with your wives. You're not spending time in prayer. You're not leading out in terms of spiritual headship in your family. You're not committed to the church. There's no reading of the Bible. There's no interest or concern with prayer or the salvation of your kids. You've dropped the ball at some point in the past. Some even in relationships that are the result of mistakes that you've made somewhere in your distant past. What I want you to hear, what I want you to know, and what I want you to rejoice in this morning, that regardless of from whence you've come, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how 
badly you've dropped the ball, no matter how grave the mistakes you've made, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is clear. There is for us a new beginning before God. By the shed blood of Jesus, all our sins stands to be washed away. Our heart stands to be filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit, making more of us, more of our marriages, and more of our families than we might ever in our own natural ability. You need only run to Jesus, weary and heavy laden. Hear the promise of the gospel that he will give you rest. Come to Jesus. So often there's a, a, a feeling of helplessness that settles in around marriage and family issues. Because you can't control them, right? I can control what I do. I, I, have, I have minimal control whatsoever. And even that may be a delusion over the things my wife does or says or thinks, the same is true of, of my kids. And all I'm left to do is to bring them before the only one in all of the world who cares for them more deeply than I do. And his name is Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to give our time and attention to considering, Lord, your intentions for our marriages and for our families. God, each of us come before you with grave shortcomings. We have in our own ways failed, fallen, made a mess. We ask now, God, that you would take the heavy yoke of guilt and shame, past failures. You would lay upon us the easy yoke of your grace and mercy. God, we ask for forgiveness, for new beginnings for the determination to press through the awkwardness of confessing our shortcomings to those we love the most and those that love us the best. Help us to own those sins and failures. Grant us the strength by your Holy Spirit that in the days ahead we might redeem the time, restore the years the locusts have taken away, walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.